Thanks, Kyle. Good morning, y'all. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao, and it's so great to be with you all this morning. Um, we are uh, in our second week of our weekly services, so woo, yay for that. Um, and yes, I am seeing some of those faces who have not been with us for a little minute. It's lovely to see y'all back. Um, it's lovely to be with you all this morning. We are in this series called Imposter, where we are engaging this idea of Jesus that we've been given by American white Christianity um, that, that props up empire and props up institutions of this culture and this world, and contrasting that with the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Taylor was talking about how our Jesus roots bring us back to the Gospels, that we start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books within the Bible that tell us about the life and teachings of Jesus. And that Jesus, a real Jesus, as I like to call him, looks really different than imposter Jesus, that cartoon Jesus of American culture. So one of the things that, that we see in this imposter Jesus is somebody who's kind of a goody two-shoes, right? Super invested in the rules. That good Jesus and therefore good Christians are law-abiding citizens, Imposter Jesus wants everyone to do as they're told, right? Which is super convenient for all those institutions of power that have a lot of things to tell us about what we ought to do and not do. So one of our analyses should always be who benefits from our obedience when our obedience goes to institutions and not to God or to Jesus. So I want you to hold that in the back of your mind. Who benefits when we are afraid to break the rules? It's those folks who are making the rules for their own gain. And so imposter Jesus rolls through the world saying, oh yes, follow the rules, don't ask too many questions, obey the law, rules are good, and good people follow rules. And some people will point to the biblical basis for this, that the Bible itself, a whole huge chunk of the Bible, is sometimes referred to as the law. Like a really big part of our holy text is considered law, and that's real. And so when people are saying, oh, well, the Bible has laws in it, that's real, and we need to take that seriously. Now, other people will quote from Romans, which comes later, and say all sorts of stuff about the authority of the government. And so we have this ongoing conversation where people are pointing to the Bible and saying, the Bible is a rule book, you should follow the rules in the rule book, and the rule book says that the authority on this earth is good and we should follow it. So, end of story, right? Well, now we have to contend with Jesus, who is our first and foremost authority on this matter. And when we see Jesus in the Bible, we see a person playing real fast and loose with the rules. And not just the rules, with the law. And not just the law, God's law, religious law. So our text today, we have two texts, and if I had uh, picked all of the texts where Jesus is breaking the law, we would be here all day. So I settled on two. You're welcome. The first one is from Mark. Um, so Jesus and his dudes are walking through this grain field, and uh, they're plucking grains, which is technically unlawful to do on the Sabbath because it's considered work. Maybe they're hungry, maybe they're not. It's a bit unclear what they're doing exactly and why, uh, why anyone would have a problem with it. But in this telling of the stories, you've got these Pharisees who are, for no particular reason, apparently waiting in grain fields on the Sabbath looking for rule breakers. 
So this, is, this seems to be a clear exaggeration, that it probably didn't go down this way, that the, the Pharisees weren't actually doing this. But this is a story poking fun at those rule-obsessed religious folks who are just waiting for people to get it wrong so that they can point it out. These are the same folks we mentioned last week that liked to measure out even their spices so that they could make sure to give 10% of everything they had to the temple because that was what was holy and pure and good. So they were really losing the forest for the trees here and not only doing that for themselves, but projecting that onto other people and trying to make other people feel like they weren't holy enough if they weren't getting the rules right to a T. So we have this caricature that's meant to poke fun at those law-obsessed people. And, and they get into a conflict with Jesus, and they're like, how could you let your followers do this unlawful grain plucking? And Jesus says a lot of stuff, and some of it's really interesting because he's quoting scripture at them, and this is what they would do to each other, right? They'd be like, well, this text and this text. So Jesus makes a really odd choice to quote scripture and then completely change all the details. So he's like, well, you know that time that David, true, and his followers, not true, were hungry, no mention of that, went into the temple when that one guy was in charge. Actually, it was a different guy. So Jesus is mixing up all of the facts and saying, well, you know that one time. And they're like, oh, well, yes, of course we know that one time. And so Jesus is catching them in this thing of like, you are using these texts. You're trying to get these every little detail right, and yet you don't even know it. You don't even know your own law. You're just trying to trap people. And he culminates his argument with a beautiful sentence. He says, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. Which is to say, the law was made for us. The law was made for people. We weren't made in order that we would obey the law. Therefore, if the law does not serve the well-being and flourishing of people, then the law itself is secondary to the flourishing of people. It is a brilliant and beautiful philosophy of law, but I'll tell you this, it doesn't actually hold up in court. I know because I tried. <laughs> There's actually court records of me arguing with a judge about Mark chapter 2. I still went to jail. That's a story for another day, a day uh, where we can discuss why I've broken the law based on my own convictions. But these are things that are going to come up for us as we understand what it means to follow God's law, even if it means breaking the laws and breaking the laws that are held so holy by our culture or even our church. And so this, this story we have in James, it's, it's highly debatable. Last time we were here, we were talking about how um, Jesus turning water into wine was the first act that he ever did in John. Some people will argue, it's debatable, but some people will argue that this is the first public act that Jesus does in Mark. And as we were saying then, when something is a first, when it's the first big, hey, this is what's up, when this is the first recorded conversation we have between Jesus and the authorities in the Gospel of Mark, it means that Mark is trying to tell us how important it is that this is the kickoff, this is how Jesus enters the scene, is by irritating these Pharisees who are lying in wait to trap people. And Jesus saying, your laws don't mean what you think they mean. You don't even understand the law that you are tasked with upholding. And Mark, 
uh, the, the character of Mark, this gospel, as we were saying before, so, so these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them shows a slightly different picture of Jesus and, and characterizes the ministry differently so that we get all these beautiful different angles on, on who Jesus was and how he taught so we can understand more deeply. And Mark's deal is like urgency. Mark uses the word immediately too much, just too much. Mark has no chill. And, and so Mark's Jesus is coming into the world not willing to wait. We cannot wait in order for the kingdom to come here on earth. We cannot wait for you to measure out your spices. We cannot wait to heal the hurting and to bring justice to the world. This has to happen immediately. And so we have this, this picture of Jesus breaking the law, saying this law is not serving the purposes of God. And it's not, it's not doing us any good to wait and debate and, and try and get caught in the weeds because we have to act now. Because people are hungry now. People are hurting now. And, and we, get this, we start to get this picture of what it means for Jesus to break the law and why he would do so. When it's like his law, right? Jesus is God. This is God's law. It's his law. He's breaking it. And he reminds them of that when he says, you know, the son of man is, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, so he's sort of like, these are my laws, I get to break them when I want to. But he's also making a broader case for what the purpose of the law is. And that brings us to our second story. In the second story, Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And all of those details together can be translated into, it's a trap! <laughs> we know that Jesus is getting set up here. We know that Jesus is engaging with folks who want to undermine his ministry. And at this dinner, there's somebody, uh, maybe it's a dinner guest, it's probably not, um, but somebody who has what's characterized in the text as dropsy, um, which is kind of an old-fashioned word for what would be known now as edema or swelling. So this person had some sort of swelling. It must have been visible swelling, um, and, and visible swelling in that day would have been associated with leprosy. So this is somebody who's really hurting, who's probably an outcast, who wouldn't be permitted into a dinner like this. That's why we think this person was not a dinner guest. And uh, so Jesus encounters this person. And Jesus, who is compassionate and loving and God, heals this person's edema, heals this person's sickness and swelling and restores them to health. And the Pharisees get all bent out of shape about it because this is one of the ongoing problems that Jesus keeps doing things like healing people on the Sabbath, and that's breaking the rules. And the Sabbath was like the rule. The Sabbath was one of the things that distinguished Jewish people from all other people. It was the thing that made you most fundamentally part of your culture. And Jesus is violating that over and over again. And so the Pharisees take this up with him probably over dinner, fun dinner party conversation. Why are you breaking the law, you heathen? And Jesus says to them, if a child or an ox falls into a hole on the Sabbath, do you pull it out? Now that might seem like a super random example, but it actually comes from an ongoing debate that the, that the leaders of the law were having. And, and people came to different conclusions about this, but the Pharisees had come to the conclusion that you could, in fact, pull your ox out of a hole on the Sabbath. 
that it was the kind and correct thing to do, not to leave an ox suffering in a hole on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, if you can pull an ox out of a hole on the Sabbath, how much more valuable are human beings? Why would you not heal a hurting human being? And this is where we start to get the real clarity about what Jesus' priorities are when he's breaking the law. Jesus isn't breaking the law willy-nilly. Jesus is breaking the law for people, for healing, for wholeness, for well-being. And sometimes that looks like grains in the field, and sometimes that looks like someone's edema. But Jesus is not afraid to break the law when the well-being of human beings is at stake. And so... It would be really easy to take all of this and say, Yahtzee, forget the law, total anarchy, end of sermon, right? I'm not a rules person, you all know that by now, and if you don't, you'll find out soon. End of the law, here we go, go home, right? Right? Sadly, no. Sadly, no, because there's actually a lot more here and a lot more to the law, and we can't write it off because... It was given to us for a purpose. Sabbath was made for humanity, not human beings for the Sabbath. We can focus on that latter part that says we weren't made in order to follow the law, but we would lose then the first part, which is that the law was made for us. God made this for us and offered it to us so that we could thrive. So let's dig into this particular law. Maybe this law is bad. Maybe Jesus is breaking Sabbath because Sabbath is, a, is a, just a bummer law. Like, why are you trying to keep me from doing good stuff on Saturdays? No. So we're going to go into Sabbath. So is Sabbath a terrible law? Sabbath is super cool, y'all. Sabbath is really, really distinct in Israelite culture. And it's powerful in ways that have important connotations for today. So Sabbath law was established as part of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were given to us, given to the people of God, after the, the, ex, or after the um, rescue from Egypt. So God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved by Egypt. And one of the things that characterized Egypt was mass production. And because they were enslaved... The, the Israelites were the ones responsible for mass production. And we have all sorts of biblical texts quoting Pharaoh over and over again saying, work them harder, take fewer resources to them, make them work just as hard, make them produce just as much. Let them rest less, work more, produce more, make more. And yeah, that sound familiar in our culture? Productivity was, was the law under Pharaoh. And because Pharaoh was Pharaoh and the Israelites were enslaved, there was no escaping it. None. So the law of the land was work. And so when the Israelites are rescued out of bondage, out of slavery by God and brought into freedom and given a new set of laws, one of the things that God made very clear from the outset is God is no Pharaoh. And God's culture has a different set of priorities. And so God said, hey, you know what my law is? Take a nap. You know what my law is? Talk to your partner. You know what my law is? Look at the stars and marvel at the universe. Tell stories, light candles, remember my love for you. Sing songs, 
Rest. One of the commandments, one of the parts of Sabbath, one of the structures of Sabbath is don't spend money. Do not spend money on the Sabbath. Do not earn money on the Sabbath. Do not work. Exit yourself from the economy. That is not what it is about. I am a God who rests, says the Lord. God's own plan, God's own creation came about incorporating God's rest. Rest is the law of God because God is no Pharaoh. So Sabbath is actually really radical. Sabbath is resistance. Sabbath is exiting from the economy, exiting from empire and saying, I will take no part in this for today, if only today, because I need to survive six days out of the week. But one day out of the week, in the manner of God, I will rest and I will honor God. And God tells me that it honors God, that I take a break. The Sabbath is beautiful, holy law. The Sabbath was made for humankind. But that Sabbath can be abused. And that Sabbath was starting to be used against human wellness. That Sabbath, in the religious culture of Jesus' day, became used as as a measuring stick of how faithful you were. Became used as a beating stick to tell you you weren't good enough. And so the Sabbath stopped being the Sabbath. This is why Jesus says, when he's challenged on these things, he says, I have come not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus who heals and feeds on the Sabbath is the Jesus who rests, is the Jesus who is invested in your well-being, not your production. That is a Jesus who honors the Sabbath by healing, by pulling the wounded out of a hole. And so Jesus breaks the law in order to fulfill it. So what does it mean if we as followers are called to break laws in order to fulfill higher laws, the spirit of these laws? Because our laws often get co-opted by culture and empire, and people become less valuable, and the spirit of the law then requires us to break it, to heal. So I want to talk about some of the laws of our own government that I've struggled with. Let's get back in our way back machine, back to 2006 when some of you were we. (laughs) And I was we just in that twinkly eye kind of way. In 2006, I uh, I was confused about immigration. I was solidly progressive and radical and leftist about all kinds of things, but I hadn't really thought about immigration a whole lot. And when it was talked about around me, I was like, oh, well, gosh, that's like, what a tough issue. We need borders, obviously, I thought, in my little 2006 brain. We need law, we need processes for entering the country. So it makes sense, and people want to be here. And, and so I started to talk to people about it and started to learn a little bit more about border policy and immigration. And, and so, when I was learning about it, the, the argument that was given was like, well, borders are supposed to keep us safe. They're supposed to give us healthy communities that are safe and bounded. And I'm like, boundaries are cool. Like, I get boundaries. But then I started to learn more and look into it. And then I started to see who exactly is affected by it. I ended up on the border 
um, in Arizona, learning that um, Border Patrol at the time had closed off the safest points of entry in the country systematically, leaving open really dangerous points of entry. And people were dying. People were crossing the border into this country trying to find work, trying to reunite with families, trying to live their best life, trying to do whatever. But they were crossing in, often on misinformation, often with no resources, or having given up all of their resources in order to try. And systematically, the US government was funneling them into the most dangerous parts of the desert to die. And the argument underneath all of it was, well, if people keep dying, then maybe folks will stop trying to do it. This is not a law that was building healthy, safe communities. This was not a law that was providing for the flourishing of people. I started looking more into it. There has been research done that says that communities in the United States are more safe the more immigrants we have who have immigrants with and without papers, no matter how they got here. The Journal of Ethnicity and Criminal Justice uh, did a, published a study saying that there was a reduction of almost five violent crimes per 100,000 residents for every 1% increase in foreign-born population. And so you see the ways that, that our, our culture has twisted our conversation about borders to tell us that immigrants are harmful or that they'll, they'll make our communities unsafe. It goes directly against the data. And instead, it's actually our own government and our own legal system that is, is intentionally bringing people to their deaths. So who is this law serving? Because it's not you and me. It's not our communities. It's definitely not immigrants. Well, it serves our empire. It serves our empire a lot to have borders to say this is mine and that is yours and I get to control it. It serves capitalism. When companies who rely on immigrant labor also rely on the terror of deportation in order to keep wages low. The raid in Missouri over the summer was at a plant where workers were unionizing. This is a set of rules claiming to be about our well-being, but actually hurting people. Borders are made for the people, not people made for borders and immigration law. And maybe we need to say, uh, we need to have a deep conversation and examine whether our borders are working for us, whether having borders at all is giving us the kind of thriving, godlike community that we want. Scripture has all kinds of things to say about the foreigner and the stranger, folks who come from other lands. And you can make any number of cases, but the arc over all Scripture, the trajectory of Scripture, is that God loves communities of strangers coming together. God commands that foreigners who are welcomed into the community of the Lord not be separated from God's people or from God. The scriptures make clear that when Milwaukee police are, are collaborating with ICE to tear families apart, that that is a violation of God's community. That is a violation of love. That is a violation of human beings. Human beings 
are not made to obey the law. And if the law is not serving human beings, then we have a God who commands us to follow in his own footsteps and break all the rules. You may have noticed that we have some controversial stickers and flags and banners out there. One of those is abolish ice. I'm actually going to send these around, and if y'all want to have them, they're yours. When we say abolish ice, it's not because we at Zhao have no respect for the law. It's actually that we have the utmost respect for God's law about welcoming foreigners, about embracing one another, about tearing down those walls that Rocky and Andrew were talking about, that we serve a higher law that is about love for God and neighbor, and that when we see the laws of our land violating human beings, violating our neighbors, we know that that's a violation against the love of God. We choose humanity because human beings are the fulfillment of the law. So be like Jesus. Break the law. Be like Jesus. Fulfill the law. I hope some of you can stick around after service and join with us in dreaming up our social justice team. I hope more of you can come in December as we launch Fist, Faith in the Streets, and as we vision what it looks like to be faithful to the law by sometimes breaking it in the face of others. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you are a renegade and a rebel. God, we pray that you would stir in us the courage to follow your example, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, not to throw laws out of the window on principle, God, but to have wise and discerning hearts, to know when faithfulness to you and to your highest law calls for us to break all the rules, to take risks, to reimagine ourselves as part of your holy kingdom, and to distance ourselves from the narratives of empire. God, you are good, and all are a part of your family. May our allegiance be with you and with one another. Amen.